0: Derek Edwards, thank you very much for joining us on the Ledger.
1: Absolutely, I'm stoked to be here, Ian. Uh, we've had some really invigorating conversations, you and I, over the last year. It's going to be fun to kind of put this one, uh, put this one on on uh, on the podcast.
0: Well, I've said this to you before, but sincerely, you know, thank you for what you do. I remember um, hearing you on on Kevin's podcast more. It was probably about a year ago, maybe I'm I'm guessing, because we met for the first time in person at VCon last year. And I just remember I was walking around Paris, listening to that podcast and thinking, "Okay, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe I'm not, not crazy because this guy is clearly <laughs> very intelligent and and he's saying a lot of the things that are in my head. So and then the, the, the piece that you um, released just a couple weeks ago was another one of those moments. You know, you were you were really touching on some of these things that um, that I feel you did a great job of putting into words. And I really thank you for joining us today to talk through the piece. That's what I really wanted to do, is to talk through the ideas that are in the piece. Um, you know, For people that haven't read the piece, it's on Derek's Medium. Um, but I think after today's conversation, you'll have a pretty good sense of, of what it is he, he thinks about. So, but first of all, before we jump in, um, for any of the On The Ledger listeners who aren't familiar with you, um, who are you? What are your credentials? And why do you yeah. think about this stuff? <laughs>
1: Well, first of all, thank you, Ian. That was a, a great intro. I, can, I, I already have the image seared in my brain of you walking around Paris listening to the pod. Um, I am Derek Edwards. I'm trained as an attorney. I went to business school, uh, ended up creating a startup company out of business school and law school after I passed the bar, decided I didn't want to practice law. Uh, ran that consumer products company with a few of my business school uh, friends for about four years. Uh, built that up. Uh, and ended up transitioning it off to a, a much larger company in our, in our space. Uh, I took about a year to think about what I wanted to do next. I started teaching entrepreneurship and marketing at the University of Oregon um, and then started writing. I started this was around 2017, 2018. I uh, started publishing work around the intersection of blockchains and regulated assets. I was fascinated with this idea of an immutable ledger for money and what else that immutable ledger could be used for. Uh, my mind started spinning. I started pulling in some of the, the concepts that I had relied upon back when I was thinking about the legal layer and laws and lawmaking and legislation. And some of the articles I wrote uh, back in the day started to kind of like steamroll and get popular. And uh, I started advising a few companies in the space in New York and Los Angeles. I uh, ended up taking over this think tank in Los Angeles and running that for a few years. Um, before I reconnected with um, my, my former business school professor, uh, where he was advising a fund called Collaborative Fund on their Web3 strategy. He brought me in to kind of help out and eventually we realized we needed to spin that vehicle out and, and kind of run our own shop. Uh, and that's how we started Collab Currency. I'm uh, one of the managing partners uh, with Steve at Collab Currency. We're an early stage Web3 venture fund uh, since 2018. Um, we've invested across the stack for the last five years, uh, but most notably, I would say over the last two or three years, been really focused and dialed in on the opportunity of where blockchains and consumer meet. And, uh, that's uh, just a quick background.
0: That's, that's great. And I mean, I feel like, you know, it's, um, it explains also why our thoughts intersect so much. I mean, we come from, you know, really different backgrounds. I spent 20 years in, in digital music and then five years at, at LVMH. But I've always considered myself a student of the way that technology is changing culture. So being at that intersection of technology and culture is always where, where I've liked to be. So um, it it makes sense. And I think that you know your piece really builds on that. You start by talking about um, you know how attention can drive value. Um, and I think you know for me one of the things that's interesting in that is you know our, our certainly our attention has the way our attention is managed for each of us has changed so much um, in the era of the internet. So explain to me what you mean by that, the sort of attention driving value and how it applies here.
1: Yeah, so I I make the point early on in the the piece that if you reduce things down to their most like, their basic origination point, it really starts and ends with attention. Uh, if you look at consumer industries, if you look at sports industries, if you look at entertainment, if you look at why we buy things or interact with people, it really kind of originates with this this concept of attention. Something is worth paying attention to or not worth paying attention to. And I think with the internet, what what came into focus is the the ability to create and write information and have that information travel at the speed of light to anywhere anywhere any anyone anywhere around the world in seconds like that barrier has now collapsed. The, the we can publish work and, and have it be read halfway across the world uh, in not very much time and start generating tens of thousands of impressions. Um, and so the question then becomes, we, what is like exactly why do people, um, how are you able to, to kind of generate value in a world where the cost of writing information and having that information read has now been reduced so quickly. And it gets to this, this idea of like the attention economy and the thesis around attention being a scarce resource. You know, one of the, you know, in, in a world of abundance, the thing that we just cannot scale very well is our ability to focus or our ability to provide attention to a, a single you know, person or a single company or a single object. And I make the argument that much like attention is a scarce resource for driving value in public equities, or in value creation anywhere around the world the same concept can hold true uh, when it comes to objects themselves and so i walk through this idea of attention as the scarce resource for driving value to a number of objects over human history leading through digital objects today
0: did you read um tim wu's book the attention merchants
1: i didn't but a few people have actually flagged that book for me since i published no it's this piece. it's
0: actually quite great and and you uh, i haven't read it in a couple of years now or maybe it's been more than a couple but um, I, and I think it's um, the reason it's great because it gives you this historical perspective on um, stealing people's attention and selling it to someone else. Mm. It, it like it properly put advertising in the crime category for me. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if that was uh that was Tim's intention or not. But um, also what you realize is that this this notion of kind of stealing people's attention is not that old. Right. Um, you know, outdoor Definitely. advertising, you know, goes back to the late eighteen hundreds. Um, in Paris actually and then obviously media has changed that a lot and I think what I love so much about your piece is for me it connects these dots right where um, you know attention is you know the attention economy is is definitely an, an internet um, phrase right and I think one of the things that that we've learned is that you know there, and, and certainly media has learned this um, the hard way you know one of the You know, most difficult transitions uh, over the last twenty-five years has been media moving from this world where they owned spectrum and therefore your attention. Right? I had very little choice of what to watch when I when I came home from school Uh, when I was a kid. But a kid coming home from school today has um, a a, you know a personalized uh, channel called TikTok, right? (laughs) Um, And you know, and, and then but what you what you do is then you connect that to the storage. Um, of, of value, you know, that you can derive from that attention, and I think that's it's such an interesting thing for me personally be, because, you know, I've watched the music business, you know, change and adapt, um, you know, to kind of this attention scarce environment, right, where you used to have a radio staff whose job was to uh-huh. get your music into this, you know, very limited, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, limited surface area uh, of radio. Um, and now, you know, you're really trying to get people's attention because attention is so scarce. But if you can get that runaway hit on, you know, on TikTok, you, you can actually then drive listens on on um, Spotify, etc. But then we also know that the ability to say monetize on Spotify is is quite low. So what you're doing is you're saying, actually, there is a there's a there's a more efficient way to capture that value. Is that is that related?
1: I think it's definitely related. And I think the. I think the larger point here is even before we think about how we monetize, like even before we think about, you know, you know the net, the net income of, you know, an equity business or how to generate revenue top line for a Spotify or how to, you know, package a, you know, a SaaS model versus, you know, selling perpetual products to an end user. Before we even get to that point of monetization, I think the argument that I was trying to to convey was that before all of this stuff, there needs to be a method by which you are able to get attention. And that can be through excellent product building. It can be through a number of markers that um, allow attention to flow back to who you are. Maybe it's partnerships. Maybe it's the ability to message and position correctly. Um, but attention is really where things originate. And I think the, the concept that I was really trying to introduce in this work was or one of the first concepts was that same attention of, of, of like how value can aggregate and 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 pool uh from attention that can also apply to single digital objects and it can we can look at what the physical the world of physical objects getting attention and becoming valuable has looked like over the last few thousand years i you know there's a couple of 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 these objects that i lay out at the very beginning there's the 1909 Tops T206 Honus Wagner card there's i think 60 or 70 of them in existence and I talk about why these things are trading for 7 to 10 million dollars each or the Salvador Mundi the you know the uh, attributed Leo, Leonardo da Vinci work that was the highest ever sale at auction i think 450 million dollars why that sold for as much as it did uh, tracing back the attention that Leonardo has developed as an artist and even though it's you know, quite uncertain whether or not he was even the creator of this work and so much has gone into rest- restoring that work, it's almost lost its, its significance. That's, that work still holds this, um, this, this cultural significance uh, and, and, and value, just given the attention that Leonardo has around himself as an artist. Uh, or why you can look to Fortnite or Counter-Strike and see these digital skins, uh, which really have no utility outside of these, these ecosystems. Why these things are trading for millions of dollars um and it really starts with attention and it can land in value creation of all different types but in the piece i make the argument that it's happening for single products and single objects and, and those objects can now be digital
0: okay i love this because what you're doing is you know i think that i think we might be able to get some people over the hump here and mm. and here's Let's here's go. the thing i think what people what people there's a couple of myths that i think we're about to break one people like to think that nfts are either all going to have value or all be useless or all have no value and what you're pointing to is something else because there are i don't know how many millions more than millions, billions of 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 baseball cards since nineteen
1: hundred,
0: and but you are pointing to one that is extraordinarily valuable, right? Most of them are not don't have any value, but there are Correct. there are a few that have extraordinary extraordinary value. Same thing with paintings, you know. We've all got you know. We can go anywhere, go to any flea market and get it, you know, and get a painting for no money. You can check out a painting from the library, um, you know, and 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 the library doesn't care if it gets you know destroyed. They care, but it's not a you know it's not a criminal offense. You know the, and but there are obviously you know then at the other end of the spectrum you have the salvador Mundi which i watched the the documentary on on a plane if someone hasn't yep. seen it it's actually a good a good example of this so Phenomenal. again yep. i think the one thing that, that people have a hard time with is yeah but it's digital right and i think we're actually going to come back around to that and and say it actually has more potential value because Uh, it's digital and that's the hard thing for people to get their head around but i think you do a good job in the piece of of laying out you know exactly why that is so two myths here you know one is that either all nfts are a scam or all nfts have value neither of those things is true um the reality is is that it's just a digital thing and that's what people need to need to get their head around um and and the second piece is that digital can have value. So let's cover the 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 first one, first. Um, you know the 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 reality is is that you know this is this was the 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 light bulb for me. And I'm curious what you think here because I know that in addition to Flamingo, you're you're a member of Red Dow, which is a digital fashion uh, one, and Noise Dow, which is a digital digital music one. The reason it's been hard for me to get my head around those investments personally is that I'm not sure those distinctions matter. Um, in the future you know i think those distinctions are quite tied to distribution um, in other words if it's in a clothing store it's called fashion if it's in a record store it's called it's mm-hmm. called music and you know the reality and the big realization that i've had is that you know louis vuitton drake and damien hurst are all in the same business um, you could say the branding business but i think relevant to this Plus conversation that. you might say the attention business uh-huh. right and Plus they that. are good at in a sea of everything that's available, getting you to direct the attention at them, right? Yes. You know, with, uh, assigning Very Virgil well as said. the men's, menswear director, uh, now assigning, you know, Pharrell as the menswear director shows how good they are
1: you at being it. an attention. I'm, smi- I'm smiling because rather. you're in my brain. And if I think to reinforce kind of the, the early conversation, if we reduce all value creation down to its atomic piece. It really is attention. And you you, did, you you said it masterfully. Damian Hurst is in the same business as Snoop Dogg is in the same business as an NBA team is in the same business as Louis Vuitton is in the same. All of these things are about creating attention. Now, the medium by which they do that changes and maybe the way they monetize changes, but at its most granular part, these all of these things are in the attention generation business.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna I want to say something now that, that hopefully will save us a lot of time Let's in the go. future because <laughs> no, in the future, you know, we're gonna have to have these conversations about. Yeah, but it, I mean, how can how can a digital thing have value, right? And I think you know I have this all the time with my former colleagues at, at, at LVMH, um, and you know I think that what we what you're saying that I agree wholeheartedly yeah. with is, actually, the value is in the attention creation. And what you're really doing is you're storing that value in the object, whether that is a handbag or a shoe or a JPEG is actually irrelevant, right? Um, there's an example I always use is that, you know, the impetus to buy an NFT is actually identical to the impetus to buy a luxury watch. Yes. Nobody buys a luxury watch to tell the time. They buy it because they appreciate the look, they appreciate the craft, they're a fan of the brand, they want to be a member of that club, they think it might have resale value. It's all the same reasons that you that you might buy a digital object. And I want to come back to the to the efficiency of that in a in a moment. Um, you know, but but the reality is is that um, you know that it's not about it being digital or physical. It's about can you store the value of that attention in that object.
1: I think you're nailing it. And just to kind of play the, the, the argument through, because I think we've touched on it a few times, I think it's important just to plant the flag. Now Uh, let's talk about like why digital objects, uh, can exist and be valuable and store that value that you're describing that attention. I think just from first principles, the way I like to describe this is over the last few decades, we've generated millions of digital objects. Like they exist everywhere. There's MP3s, there's .movie files, there's Word documents, there's PowerPoints, there's Excel sheets, there's video game characters, there's Twitter handles, there's the messages we send to one another over email. I mean, these are at their component parts are just like digital objects that are moving and flying around. The trick though, is that there hasn't been a way to create scarcity that travels with unique digital property there just hasn't. And so the ability for us to create all of this abundant digital content has not been paired with the ability to establish property rights over that digital content. And that's where blockchains come in. Uh, Blockchains are really just a database. And that database allows you to do programmatic, you know, activities on top of that database that anyone can read and write to. And one of those programmatic activities is the ability to wrap through standards like the ERC-721, take a digital wrapper, wrap it around a digital object and prove that that's the only digital object that is, has been created or prove that a creator actually created that. And once you can establish that a digital object is scarce, that's the job to be done, you can actually start to build all sorts of property rights on top of that provenance, on top of that digital object that we now know is scarce, that mirrors exactly the property rights that we've been able to build around physical objects using the legal air in the real world, right? And I don't like to use the real world versus the digital world, because I actually think so much of our real world today is our experience digitally. But in the, in the language of what it means to establish digital property rights, I think it's important to recognize we now, for the first time ever, have the ability to tell that a digital object is scarce. And now that we can tell that a digital object is scarce, and that there's an owner and that it's been created and it's timestamped on this public trust-minimized database that anyone can read or write to now we can actually start to build property rights much like we've had property rights for thousands of years
0: yeah and I want to respond to someone who in their head is saying yeah but that that scarcity is fake and say scarcity is fake all over the place right I mean if you blow makes 250 watches they decided to make 250 watches it's not like you know they couldn't have made more they decided. To make that scarce if there's a warhol print that is 150 yeah. i mean there's only 150 that was just decided that wasn't yes. you know that's not real scarcity versus fake scarcity that is scarcity it's the definition of of scarcity and i feel this you know i was thinking the other day um my my girlfriend pulled um this hard drive out of the closet uh and said what is this and i was like uh <laughs> That's a NAS. It's got a bunch of uh, 192 kilohertz, 24 bit audio on again, it. You're dating yourself again, Ian. You're dating yeah, yourself. Yeah, well, come again. on. I, you know, I am, I am, I am old. <laughs> but I, you know, my point was, I sp- at one time bought a bunch of 192 kilohertz, 24 bit audio. Now, if those had been scarce digital objects, imagine if you know those that that you know Keith Jarrett Köln concert that I that I that I bought was actually scarce. My relationship to it would be different. And in fact, my relationship with the creator would be different, right? My relationship Mm -hmm. with ECM records would be different. I could be, I would then be identified as one of the people, you know, who, who opened up their wallet and decided they wanted to own this digital object, which I did, but now I'm just a fool because I'm the guy who bought the high fidelity version. But if I had been, you know, I, if, when I buy the vinyl, that's not quite my relationship. And now we, we have, have that opportunity. I want to make one more point and then I want to turn to why, um, you know, digital is so efficient because I think you do a great job of that in, in the piece. Again, just trying to help people get over the hump here. I want to remind people that there are a hundred million songs on Apple Music um, and there's only roughly a million that people love. Right. And I think that's another, again, you know, we know that most films that are made, you're not going to like. Most books that are written, you're not going to like and you won't have an affinity to. Most music that is made, there will always be more aspirants than there are success stories. You know, Drake is Drake, Rihanna is Rihanna, and the tale is very long. Right. And we, and we know this. And I think that, you know, again, I want to get people past that sort of it's all a scam or it's all great. Those, you know, there will be, and I love that what you're bringing to the forefront is what makes that different attention. There are lots of people who want to be fashion designers. There are relatively few successful ones. Um, And and that will, and attention is the differential. I think that's the, that's a real unlock
1: there. Yes. And I'll also just add as it relates to, so moving away from like the, the different types of um, products and services and value and monetization that we can do around attention, but just purely speaking about physical objects here for a moment, I bring up the Salvador Mundi, and I bring up Rothko in the piece, and I bring up, you know, this Honus Wagner card, and I bring up, you know, a single skin on Counter Strike that's sold for one and a half million dollars to illustrate that if you can generate attention and translate it into a single object successfully, if there can be one, if there can just be one, then there can be tens of thousands, right? And so yeah. If you can just understand that a single piece of art can trade for 150 million dollars that a single digital object can trade for one and a half million dollars that a honus wagner card that was made a hundred years ago is being bought and sold for seven and a half million dollars today if you can understand that that's happening one time then it can definitely happen again and again and again and again and so as soon as you understand that concept You've, you've, you've understood the power of attention, you've understood the, the power of scarcity, and you've understood the, the power of actually why being able to prove digital property rights can now take some of these past human behaviors and bring them into a new digital format.
0: Okay, and I'm gonna go one more again, just in, in hoping that, we're, that, we're, that, that somebody might listen to this and go, ah, finally I get it. Another way that I've put it, and I learned this very clearly at LVMH, is that storytelling equals value right? Um, you know, look at Basquiat. Um, the, the value of a Basquiat is not the value of the paint in the wood. We all agree with that. We all agree that Basquiat paintings do have value and whether you like them or not is irrelevant because, you know, if one becomes up for sale, it will find a buyer. Nothing that I'm saying has anything to do with the fact that this piece of art is material. None of this has to do with the paint and the wood. All of it has to do with Basquiat, exactly. who he was, how he created, how, how many of these pieces are in existence, the fact that another one will never exist, there will never be a new one, and the story travels. To your point about attention, it's a story worth telling. We could say the same thing about many other paintings, but the reality is, is that as there are more human beings on Earth and more time passes, more people will know the Basquiat story and therefore value increases. Supply does not increase, Storytelling does increase; therefore, value increases.
1: Yes, you nailed that. And and we could I, we could say
0: the same thing about autoglyphs. All of the same facts are true about autoglyphs.
1: Yes. So maybe let's go there, and maybe we talk about the format of digital and why it's so conducive to that information and that storytelling traveling. And yes, I would please. say just to the just to like set the stage when we when you're when we're now talking about a digital object enjoying the same properties as information on the internet because that's all this is digital objects are just information uh, and that information can have tremendous amounts of value and we can talk about the different ways that digital information can have value through these objects but because it shares the same corpus the same format as any type of digital content that lives on the internet you can start to enjoy the benefits of networking these objects in ways that are previously impossible when we're talking about you know, let's let's talk about a Michael Jordan signed basketball as an example. Well, if I want to find a buyer for that Michael Jordan signed basketball, where do I go? Well, maybe it's eBay. Maybe I got to type in and create a listing. Maybe I'm able to like find a buyer over time, but because there's no, you know, there's a, a net new discovery process that's happening. And there's maybe some communication that goes around. Well, what, how, what's the condition of the basketball? Where, where has it been stored? Is it, you know, is the signature degrading a bit compared to that other signature? Okay, so maybe I do find a buyer and I'm able to negotiate a price and it takes a couple of weeks. All right, well, now how do I get it to them? Well, I got to make sure I get insurance for this. And then I got to wrap it up in secure packaging. And I got to make sure it gets over there. And then I also need to make sure that we're using some trustless payment for him to pay me uh, for that, that object. And maybe something gets lost in transit. And now all of a sudden we've got another week or two before it gets there. And they are telling their credit co- company, credit card company to stop the payment. And all of a sudden you're introducing all of these intermediated effects of having to deal with value transferring for these objects in physical spaces. And if you compare that to digital objects in digital environments, at moving at the speed of the internet and the speed of, of, of how quickly this, this stuff can move around the world, uh, you're, you're completely collapsing the intermediated forces that require value transfer for physical objects when you now introduce them as purely digital objects on these trust-minimized databases called a blockchain. And so just to set the stage, we're talking about completely different methods by which these things can get networked with attention and by which these things can move anywhere around the world in seconds on this settlement layer that's trust-minimized that anyone can read and write to. I,
0: I think that th- this is one of the most underestimated And misunderstood and or just underappreciated things at the the moment and if you're unless you're doing it right unless you're actively trading then you don't feel it yet but your um your example is you know is is so right to me and it's funny i i I red-pilled an artist a couple weeks ago we were together um you know through a mutual friend and she's a great artist and she actually just had the sort of you know she hadn't experienced the ecosystem yet and the conversation started by her saying, "Yeah, but you know, I, I just don't I don't understand. Like, what do you do with it? This digital art." And I said, uh. "You know, I actually think that that digital is a much more efficient um, way of experiencing art than physical. I mean, I can yeah. take it with me everywhere I go. I can hang it on 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 any wall. I can trade it at any time. Um, if when I trade it, it can't be damaged. You know, like it, when you look at it, kind of point by point, it's actually much more efficient. Um, and and I think this is what's." What's underappreciated? You know, I have this Louis Vuitton Supreme skateboard case, um, which is, you know, in a in a in, encased in in glass in a coffee table that LVMH made for me, and and in a closet at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, now, imagine if that thing were part of a frictionless global, always on market, where even if I weren't selling it, someone could make an offer on it. Yes. I might see an offer and my eyebrows go up, and I accept that offer, right? You know, it it actually. The context is so different, so global, so transparent, and so frictionless. Um, to your point, that I don't think we understand, you know, how big that is. You know, and and I think the other thing that is that you point to in your piece, which is a completely different dimension, is is that the the provenance and the ownership um, can be verified, you know, programmatically. Yes. Um. So that if uh, if owning that object, you know, let's use my Vuitton Supreme skateboard case, you know, owning that object puts me into a relatively rare group of people. Well, maybe there's something Vuitton wants to do for me as a a member of that rare group. There's no, you know, verifiable, um, you know, way for way for them to do that right now. So you add this, you know, complete this other uh, kind of dimension of ownership, you know, ownership becomes membership and identification as well.
1: Yes. So, so much to talk about with what you just described, but this idea of I'd just like to give you know some of the listeners a taste of what that actually means in practice. Because we now have this global, 24-7, always-on, trust-minimized database that anyone can read or write to, and because I am constantly pinging that database with the objects that I own, the activities that I'm doing on-chain, or the groups that I belong to, all three of those things can now exist and, and live on this trust-minimized database you can actually start to create a profile segmentation of who Derek is and his identity on this database that anyone can see. And obviously there's, you know, there's technologies that are in place to be able to for Derek to be able to shield some of that information away from other folks. Uh, but as it currently stands, that ability to have a profile of who I am means that all sorts of products and services can be tailored to me and the communities that I belong to, or the objects I belong to, or the things that I've done in the past on this database that currently are impossible to do in the physical world. When I, you know, buy an object, let's call it a pair of Nike sneakers and you know a, a Supreme shirt, and uh, I own those things in my in my on my body, and I walk around around Los Angeles wearing those things. I mean, the ability for Nike or Supreme or others really to understand that that's how i'm deciding to you know demonstrate my identity that day or even continue to own those objects persistently that that information doesn't exist but the ability for me to rig my digital avatar with these six different items proves that and show that i belong to these communities and that i'm doing these things each day demonstrates that like a, a lot more uh, that granularity of like those decisions around my identity can now be amplified and distributed and shared and networked in ways that are just previously impossible. I would say like that is, you know, we're going into some really like exploratory discussion there, but I just want to flag that that is where we're going, the ability to, um, to, to create new types of products and services that we just can't given the limitations of, uh, the objects we own today, not being networked, but at, yeah. you know, if we're just going to talk about one zero to one upgrade by which digital objects have that physical don't i mean it's something like only five percent of museums show that i mean i think it's something like five percent of the collections are shown at a museum at any given moment just given like the limitations of space to be able to now, like, one of the one of the features
0: the at the bro one of the features at the broad in la for those who haven't been is that you can see where they store the art <laughs> it's, kind it's, of, awesome. it's kind of it's got it's kind of amazing you're like Oh Wow yeah all of the stuff that's not on the wall agree and so this kind of infinite shelf space or infinite wall space is is also interesting and to your point um, ownership matters Um, a a, a great story a friend I probably shouldn't you know dox him on this but um, he's a he's a known figure uh he's a a celebrity figure and he 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 said to me i don't own any nfts but i understand it and i'll tell you why and he told me these two famous works of art that he owns and he said i go to sleep every night knowing i own them and it's part of my personality it's part of who i am as an individual and he said and if i'm honest i haven't seen either of them in years Mm. he said you know one of them is his house is being remodeled the other one he bought it recently it's in storage but the point is is that he realized that the You know, kind of the ownership matters separately from hanging, um, you know, from hanging that art on his wall. And I think, you know, I want to come back to your point about um, that kind of personalization based on what we own, um, because I think it's really powerful. Now, I think, you know, we all should worry about privacy. So let's. 100%. um, Yes. And, and so so let's let's do worry about privacy. Yes. Let's also acknowledge. I remember, you know, I'm, I'm going back again. I'll be the old man. I'm going back to around, you know, 2000. And what Rob Lord and I used to say was, you know, the interesting thing about your music collection is that it's in, intensely personal and it's not that private. Right, people are actually happy to share. You know, I, I, I realized this when I started at LVMH that you know, carrying a Louis Vuitton handbag and wearing a Slayer T-shirt actually serve the same function in society, right? They say, I'm a member of that tribe, I'm not a member of that tribe. Yes. Um, so we do have these things, to your point, music, fashion, art, again, to come back to Drake, Louis Vuitton, and, and, um, and Damien Hurst all being in the same business. These are all things which are very personal, you know, people love Jeff Coons or they hate Jeff Coons, right? People love Louis Vuitton or they hate Louis Vuitton. So these are very personal choices, but they're not really private choices. People are generally happy to share with you, you know, where they, you know, where they stand, even if you're a total stranger. So I think that I think you're right. Like there's so much kind of power that will come from that. So let's assume that we need to solve the problem of privacy, but we also get this kind of added bonus of being able to say who we are as individuals. Um, you know, in, in lots of, in lots of new ways, instead of having what we have today, not and maybe not instead of, but, you know, Google, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok are just inferring this yes. uh, on, on you today. It's not like, uh, it's not like you're hiding it. Um, your preferences from people today, you're, you're, you're just not owning it, I guess yes. is another way to put it.
1: I think you nailed it. And I'll just say on this privacy discussion, cause it's a very important one it's important to know that like there's an immense amount of benefits that can exist when you have a public database that can't be tampered with in real time that anyone can read and write to and I would say it's important that those benefits start to come to bear and then we talk about which types of things we would rather keep private and obfuscate in terms of making sure that we're retaining some semblance of privacy instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying you know, there's no reason that any of this stuff should exist because like this really is very invasive and nothing is obfuscated and everything can be seen. And there's like a number of dangerous outcomes that can exist as a result of pub- like, public transparency. I actually believe that privacy is incredibly important. I myself am a, like a fairly private person. And I strongly believe in the ability to build products on top of these ledgers that obfuscate some of the decisions today that aren't being obfuscated knowing that that's how these mass market products will exist in the future but it will only exist on top of a public you know trust minimized database at its core that can be viewable by anybody like that primitive has to exist for these other technologies to then become useful for me
0: yeah there the conversation between vitalik and balaji um on balaji's podcast touched on this uh, i definitely refer people there for a, for a pretty interesting um, discussion of how that might roll up, where you have this public blockchain, but then you have you know these other areas where um, where things are more private. Yes. You know, to to keep going with your piece, I, I'm I'm really curious. You know, in in your piece, you know, in addition to talking about the physical items that you talked about earlier, you talk about some of the premier um, NFT projects. You know, um, Punks, Autoglyphs, um, Squiggles on the on the art side, and and then you know with with the artists, you know, people like Beeple and and, and X you know my feeling is you know these people are, are like the beatles on on some level right yes. they'll, they're first they'll always be first there's there's nothing you're going to do to to make them not first and and there's value in in, in that I'm, I'm curious what you think go, though going further out i think that you and i you know both believe that you know this is inevitable and there will be you know an a, an appreciation of of people's art which is different than there is today if we go out you know 25 years from now at the same time i think you'll have you know more of a proliferation of digital objects than ever they will just be you know they'll they'll be sort of like space junk right yeah. they'll there'll be uh, you know nfts for every for for everything um and you also have you know in the art category you know what everything the ai is is going to is yes. going to bring and what that might do to aesthetics and yes. how we you know what it is we appreciate so i'm i'm really curious you know where you you know where you see this going like when this does become You know kind of when everybody has a digital wallet and it starts by having their government document in it but then it also has you know all of the other kind of um you know things you collect and the moments in your life and you know for me it would be every band t-shirt i've ever owned and an nft showing that you know skateboard that i got when i was 15 years old you know what i mean like all of these a future me would have all of these things in their digital wallet how do you think that changes you know what is kind of valued and valuable yeah. how do we differentiate at that point
1: wow yeah and so many so many questions great questions in there to unpack but maybe i can just riff on a couple of them and then hopefully we end up somewhere addressing please a lot of these so i'll i'll first start by saying in the future anything that can be digital will be digital i just i fundamentally believe that that there's a grand trend line where information is just becoming more digitized we've seen it for the last 5 decades that will continue to persist and ramp up. Now, and one I, thing
0: one of the ways I've I've stolen this from you and and I will let's let's throw it here. Um you know, what you've said is we're going through this once in human humanity kind of digitization of everything. Yes. And if I may, and I think I'm paraphrasing you here, that there's actually sort of two separate steps here if people want to get their head around it. One is the digitization of all information, and you could argue that it's already happened or is like very close to complete. Yes. In fact, I think ChatGPT would like us to digitize more because it's running out of data set to, to chew on. Um, and then there's a second thing, which is the digitization of all value, uh-huh. which is really, you know, just, just, just starting. You know, there, there are states that are digitizing um, their identification. Um, I think, you know, California announced an initiative to, to digitize titles and deeds and, and these sorts of things. So, so that's, that's what you mean, right? And I think it's for the audience. I just wanted to capture those two separate things again, because I see these as two separate revolutions, you know, when I'm talking to my friends, there's the internet, which was a revolution of information and then there is blockchain which is a revolution of value And this is why i think web3 is a misnomer it's not incremental it's actually a separate technological revolution to use the sort of carlotta perez um you know framework uh for that so i think that that if that's one i think that's a great way to look at it that i took from you so so thank you i hope you don't mind me restating
1: no not at all you totally nailed it and i will also just say for folks wondering where that line is drawn uh, today a lot of the things that are becoming digital whether that's information or value still exist on very siloed non-trust minimized architecture. So the idea that um, all of the information that you you know create on a Google product or on Dropbox or on Twitter, the all of that information that is digital around your identity, around the things you're saying, your communications, that doesn't exist on a public database. That exists on Twitter's database. That exists on Google's database. That exists on You know the dtcc which manages and settles all of the world's securities their database and so on and so forth today the digitization of all information is only a step function to just you know the information that used to go on a paper document that would go inside of some file cabinet that existed in some company's office building that we're now at the digital equivalent of what that process is it's just writing information to a database that's owned by a sole person or a sole company or a sole entity. The true digitization of value will only happen when we can all read and write information that is immutably placed on top of a public database that nobody can tamper with. Right. And that is when that that is the process that we are going into now. It started with money. So Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, these things proves that you could actually create programmatical programmatic programmatic scarce digital money that people could use for a unit of account, for storing value, for as a medium of exchange, on top of this trust-minimized database that tracked and traded all of that information in real time. Now, my view is that blockchains, like they did for money, is gonna just suck in all information that has become digital over time. And that information can relate to property deeds, it can relate to car loans, it can relate to employment agreements and contracts. It's gonna to relate to all of it. All of this stuff is gonna end up on a public database where the value prop is so much more interesting for information to settle than it is on these the segregated, siloed, centralized database structures that everything exists on today. And so that is to, to just like reinforce the point Ian just made, that is the revolution that we're going through right now. It's going from these private siloed database architectures into this trust-minimized global architecture that can only exist on something like a blockchain. Um, and so.
0: You're saying everything will all value will be digitized. And then to to relate that back to my question, then that, you know, how do we then how do think how do some things become kind of inordinately, you know, more value? And isn't there just sort of a, you know, a sea of counterfeits or something? I'm I'm playing the devil's advocate case. here. No,
1: these are all great questions. So let me start with saying, like, what is valuable today as a digital object on a blockchain? And you touched on these already. So there's things that have uh, there's three blockchain based art projects that I talk about in particular that are like very well networked that were all kind of symbols for the creative process they unlocked new territory they inspired how communities conformed on demand the art exists on chain and that's crypto punks that's autoglyphs and that's Chromy squiggles those three all basically employed new standards that inspired how the the nft space really blossomed and so those things have been deemed to become valuable objects in and of themselves the collection value for CryptoPunks is something like a billion dollars. Autoglyphs and Chromie Squiggle are something like $250 million each. Um, Those collections are all very valuable. You also mentioned Xcopy and Beeple. Now, those two artists were creating digital art not on a blockchain for about 10 years each, like prior. right? I think Beeple was something like 13 years. Xcopy was something like 10 or 11 years. They used Tumblr. They used Twitter. They used... Kind of social media platforms by which to bring their digital art to bear I know people used instagram every day for 13 years posting 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 and by the time they each launched digital objects there was so much attention around each of those artists that had been created over a decade that it was inevitable that that translation would happen into these digital objects becoming more valuable and so we see this with their work i mean their work continues to sell for millions of dollars every time they launch new work and it's because these these artists are so good at generating attention around their style around the um like the the content and the composition of what they're trying to say and the fans that have kind of you know aggregated around each of those artists in particular now there's yeah, and so
0: so it comes back to attention
1: yes it always comes back to attention and, and i'm going to
0: use my i'm going to use my basquiat example to say because you know you would say okay but isn't it just a bunch of hype and and ultimately you know the the bottom falls out, and you know crypto punks have no value. And I'll come back to the Basquiat example and say, for all I, I'm, I agree with you that for the reasons you just said, actually, and that's why it's me. That's what I mean that these pro- particular projects and artists are like the Beatles because yes. the storytelling grows, and as this, st- if the storytelling grows faster than the supply, then actually, you know, d- you know, price not price or or, or value increases. You know, yes. unless you know, and and so in other words. You know, I had a had a friend who this is you know a year and a half ago said, you know, should I you know, think I should buy one of these CryptoPunks things? They're pretty expensive, and they they've definitely decreased in value since that time. By the way, mm-hmm. and my answer to him was, look, I couldn't tell you if the monetary exa- you know value is going to be there over what time horizon. I'd have no idea. Will these things be shown in museums in the future? Yes, they will because they are a part of history. So, again, you can kind of infer value from, you know, from that concept, um, you know, over time, but, but, you know, completely agree with you.
1: Yes. And then it's important here, Ian, to delineate that NFTs, digital objects, these are just a, 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 like a technology format by which to prove scarcity. And as you know, and I know that what actually, what actually goes inside of that digital wrapper is far more important. And I introduce the argument in the paper that today, I mean, in the future, there's going to be all types of things that exist inside this digital wrapper. I touched on a bunch of them. It's going to be, you know, employment contracts, deeds, home title, all of these things are going to exist in digital form and exist on a blockchain. But today, there's really only two things that exist that have found product market fit that are unique digital objects that live on a blockchain. And those two things are store value objects. And I just touched on a bunch of them. I think the the best comp is what we see around traditional art markets and storing value and storing wealth in a Rothko or in a Damien Hirst, a formaldehyde shark, or whatever it may be. There are massive, massive markets that represent you know trillions of dollars that exist in the storage of art. And that is a store value use case that those things are optimizing for over time. But there's a completely different category of digital objects that will exist on a blockchain, and you touched on it. It's going to be things like Band shirts. It's gonna be things like video game characters. It's gonna be things, the long tail of digital objects is likely going to fit into that bucket, which is you know things that are look more like products and services than they do like store of value assets. And I think the problem that folks are having when they look at this technology, there's just so many frictions. There's what's an NFT? What's a blockchain? What's a digital object? Can a digital object be valuable? Before you can even get to the point of, okay, well, what actually is this thing is the reason why I think it's it's so uh, inaccessible for folks to really grok what's going on but I think the what is this thing is actually the most important part of de- determining like is this thing can this thing be valuable or not or how should we value this thing in the future and so it was really important to me to introduce this concept of store value digital objects and the calculus around why these things could become valuable and digital products and services and the calculus around those things and how they can become valuable and that these two are really different things like i shouldn't store wealth for the try and preserve wealth for the long run in a band t-shirt but maybe i certainly want to in a chromi squiggle because these things are really being understood for completely different reasons and as a result they will be valued over time historically in much different ways
0: yeah and i I think it's so important for people to understand because when they think of nft they think of of you know this thing you know you buy, that you buy low and, and sell high when really what they should be thinking is no it's simply digital scarcity right yes. it's the ability to make something both digital and scarce and we didn't have that before because if if you lost your Jay Z MP3 I would just send you another one um, but but I can't do that same thing um, if that Jay Z MP3 is an NFT I mean I would actually be transferring. Um, a scarce something to you whether it has value or not another example that i i use for people sometimes is to say many of these things will be much more like your cd wallet again i'm going to date myself third time in the <laughs> episode, third time's a charm you know if, if you in 1991 you know you uh broke the window of my mitsubishi Galant and uh store, stole my cd wallet um it wouldn't prevent me from paying my rent You know, it doesn't like change my economic, you know, outcome as a human being, but you really stole something that has a lot of value to me. Right. I built that CD wallet up over many years. I've got many memories in it. It's like, you know, so I think people need to remember that that that, you know, another way to put it is, you know, NFTs are just digital stuff and just like in the rest of your life some stuff has a lot of value and some stuff has very little value and some stuff has sentimental value and even though it has no value to anyone else you still won't throw it away right um and um and so i think that that's a that's the other thing that's important i think you touched on another you know important thing in your just now and also in your piece about goods and services. Yeah. You know, for me, there's, um, you know, we've kind of, you know, the, the invention, just like if, if, you know, again, we've got these two revolutions, an, an internet revolution, or an in, revolution of information and a revolution of value. You know, TCP IP, um, you know, has has led to a world where, you know, I can, you know, use Airbnb and use DoorDash, and you know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't imagine yes. that this very simple invention has, has kind of rewired humanity in such an ex- extreme way. I think similarly a revolution of value will have you know will have it will have you know big implications and it goes from kind of digital money to digital collectibles ultimately digital identity and in the middle as you allude to we have these goods and services um like memberships tickets yes these sorts of things so touch on that a bit for us
1: yes so the, the argument that i make is like and you just totally encapsulated it the the calculus for understanding why somebody would store value in an object like gold or real estate or fine art is totally different than the purchasing and spending behaviors we have around the products and services that exist around us. Whether it is I'm taking a Lyft or an Uber or I'm having Grubhub delivered to me or I'm buying a t-shirt or I'm, you know, downloading an MP3 for ninety nine cents. These things involve the transfer of money, but they couldn't be far farther apart in the the end state that the, these things are optimizing for. And so um, I actually, only a few people picked up on this, but I thought it was very important um, to, it's it's very important to do, which is I actually didn't use the word NFT once in this entire piece. I didn't, I used the word digital object, I talked about blockchain based assets, and I talked about like the the value props of these things, because my fear is that the word NFT brings so much baggage and so much connotation that everything is just getting lumped together. And the thing that was like very therapeutic for me with this piece was to start unbundling and disaggregating these these concepts and distru- and describing why these things are so different. And and it really and th- this is an example that just kind of drives that point home. Products and services are far different than store value assets. Um, and so just to like describe about what like a product or service is. I mean, it's it's a consumable that will be used to to solve a job to be done. Uh, typically, these things have you know, these they trend to zero as the product or service is being used, uh, right? Like once my ride is finished and I paid for that ride, um, there's no value in the ride that I just had, right? Like the value exchange has happened. And, and just because I have a receipt for me taking that ride doesn't mean that receipt is valuable anymore. And so it's important for us to start recognizing that if everything that can be digital will be digital and blockchains are a method by which to create scarcity around the objects and information that's digital to start creating in like a, an improved language about the types of things that we'll see. And so, just to to answer your question quickly, products and services represent you know trillions of dollars in GDP annually, and that will be a massive, massive category unlock for these blockchain-based ledgers in the future. But I will say, like we're still very early in the types of products and services that exist. It's it is today things like access passes. It is things like fashion. It is things like, you know, um, very rudimentary, you know, um, products and services that are taking a digital corpus. Um, but I definitely expect these blockchains to take on much more interesting, sophisticated business models around products and services over time with digital objects and NFTs being the atomic unit for how value moves throughout these systems.
0: I find it interesting to think about um, which ones will benefit from the scarcity and which ones might not. I actually was surprised that Spotify started with token gated playlists because, uh, you know, uh, why playlists are not scarce, you know? And uh, okay, you're going to token gate the playlist. Well, guess what? I'll just go recreate it over over here. Um, I thought a much better use case for Spotify would have been um, podcast subscriptions, right? Because there are many people that are doing all kinds of hacks. Um, you know, to, to, to get podcast subscriptions at this point, you got to go get the other feed and it's like, doesn't work. And you can just share it with a friend. And like, it's kind of a fundamentally broken ecosystem that feels like it, it could be, um, could be fixed here. So it feels like maybe some things will benefit from this and others won't. And I always think of ticketing as kind of the perfect example of, um, something that's gone through this life cycle where when I was a kid, and I went to see ACDC. I, you know i took the tick the ticket and I stuck it on my wall mm. because that was you know that was like you know a badge of honor your point the ticket's no good anymore, but right. i still you know it it's still serves a
1: different it serves a different role, which is like demonstrating your identity, which I think you want to due in perpetuity.
0: Exactly. I was there, right? Yep. Now what have tickets become during the internet? What did the internet do to borrow from Tim Wu? It's sort of hyper advertised us, right? So now, you know, and and you know, as we know if the product is free, you are the product. Yes. Well in the case of a live nation ticketmaster ticket you are definitely the product because you pay for the ticket and then you pay for the paper and the ink that prints the ticket so you can print their ad on your ticket right i mean it's the ultimate example of what the internet has done has done to us from sort of a hyper advertisement side and i'm picturing a future where my ticket is once again collectible and viewable in my digital gallery
1: yes and to take that metaphor further i will also say that like there are lots of things now that and maybe it's not a ticket, you know, maybe it's a poster, or maybe it's a band t-shirt. But once you've bought these objects and you own these objects and they're in the digital form, you've now created a line of communication between yourself and The person or the band or the the company or the entity that you bought it from and so what does it mean for that band to deliver value to ian not just when he was 13 years old but again when he's 15 years old or 18 years old or during their next album or during their next world tour when they stop by ian city how can they actually use that design space in way more interesting ways knowing that ian went to that concert when he was 13 and can they actually create new types of products and services over the life of that relationship now that they have this marker by which they've established a connection between Ian, 13-year-old Ian, and ACDC?
0: You know, and, and you know, it's no, it's no mistake that Mike Shinoda is one of the artists who got this, who got this first. Um, you know, two things, uh, anecdotes from my side. You know, the, the Beastie Boys understood the internet the day I showed it to them in 1994 because what they saw was a way to access their fans, which didn't require them going through radio or MTV. So it's exactly what you, what you just yep. described. Um, now, if you look at um, Mike Shinoda, um, you know, look at the Lincoln Park fan club. Fan clubs, people think, oh, they're fan clubs. No, fan clubs are generally scalper clubs. That's what they've always been. It's been, you know, I, I'm just gonna join this fan club. It's a business for me. I buy the tickets early and then I sell them on the secondary market. Um, I it's mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a secret in the music business. You know, Mike really tried to solve that problem and tried to make the Lincoln Park fan club really about fans, but if you look at what they did, 2009, 2010, um, the day one of the ticket on sale. So let's say they're putting, you know, a show in New York on sale. Day one is for annual fan club holders. Day two is for monthly fan club holders. Day three is for anyone who ever bought anything from their online store, and then day four is the public on sale. Ooh. What does that sound like to you? Right? Ooh. I mean, they've they, he he got the the windowing model and the sort of different levels of kind of membership and like how big a fan are you kind yes. of um, kind of thing. A hundred percent, and he found ways to really reward those those people. So. I mean, I think that that's why Mike is so early in this space is because he saw this and said, I know exactly what this is. Yes. Like, I know, I know what to do with this.
1: And we're seeing it, we're seeing it aggressively ramp up where the ability to monetize without in intermediaries has already started to happen in web two spaces. And Mr. Beast and Mr. Beast, like influencers are really at the heart of that movement. I mean, I, I write about this in the piece, but Mr. Beast has 125 million YouTube subscribers. He's been valued at over one and a half billion dollars, his uh, associated properties. And really, what, what is it? It's a YouTube account where he's able to, you know, create content that is enjoyed by hundreds of millions of people, tens of millions of people in real time. Now, his ability to monetize historically has been through the YouTube platform. But more and more, if you look at these digital objects in Web3 and Trust minimized Ledgers, you're now able to take the benefit of this uh, infinite uh, and the the speed and and um, reach and distribution of these platforms, but not actually require the 40%, 50% rent-seeking that happens from, at the platform level. And I think more and more we're going to start to see that inter- those intermediaries collapse. And I think you touched on it with Shinoda early on. It's like the ability to engage directly with your audience and provide persistent value. I think what digital objects and blockchains do is it just accelerates that movement faster and it allows these business models, these objects, these digital object product and services to exist where there isn't rent extra- extraction from intermediaries because those things have been collapsed in a purely digital environment. And the next Mike Shinoda, the next Mr. Beast, can have and enjoy 99.9% margins because they're able to frictionlessly have a conversation and value exchange between their audience in real time.
0: So would you say that, um, you know, stick with the theme of your piece that Mr. Beast is is incredibly good at um, acquiring attention, but he's the tools that he's using are not the most efficient at storing the value of that tension.
1: It's a step function to where I think we're going, which is The, 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 what Mr. Beast illuminates is the power of attention generating activities and the ability to like have an audience completely converge around what you're doing, a single human in real time, but it still is, you know, bagged down by like third party platforms. It's still bogged down by, you know, I don't want to throw any of these, these giants under the bus, but Spotify artists only take home eight to 12% of every streaming dollar that they generate. You know, um, YouTube creators are only taking home. I think something like 30 to 40% of every dollar that they generate. I mean, the story of web two is distribution becoming amplified, but third party intermediaries benefiting from the majority of the dollars that are generated. And I think what web three introduces is nothing about the distribution qualities of the internet has to change in terms of generating attention, but the value that you're able to create can no longer has to go through these third-party intermediaries in the same way. These things, to your point, Ian, can now really exist between fan and um, attention creator and attention recipient uh, in a way that's just much more elegant and and retains much of the value as it flows through the universe of uh, uh, over time.
0: I love this, and this is exactly why I wanted to do this episode. So thank thank you so much. What I love is that you have connected um this attention economy with this you know kind of value economy the the internet of you know the the revolution of information you know with this revolution of value and i think it it gives a a a great framework for thinking about it and i think you know if you look at the way that the internet has disrupted the flow of information right And, and and you there's no way to argue that it hasn't and by the way you know i was at aol during the aol time warner merger so I, I remember very well there were many people that wanted to argue that that information was not going to be disrupted uh-huh. right and and you could also argue that in many ways we just ended up with a different type of ol- oligopoly so i don't want to i don't want to some people think that i'm always pointing to a brighter world and that's that's not the case actually i'm only pointing to a different world um you know not necessarily a a, a brighter one they um I think I often, oftentimes people, people mistake my excitement for, um, kind of innovation and change as an optimism, (laughs) which is not, Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily, um, uh, correlated, but I, I do imagine this world where, you know, if you look at the kind of the, the flow of attention today, so often brands, um, you know, I'm on, I still work with LVMH, I'm on the board at Dr. Martins, you know, and when you are trying to build attention for your brand, you're generally paying an agency to create something that might, get someone's attention and then you're paying someone else to put it into a channel right like yes. uh, you know whether it's a Facebook it. or out-of-home advertising now imagine if you took that same budget whatever you were going to spend you know with you know with that agency and with that media channel and you just gave that value to the audience that you're trying to reach so it's not just about you know fan you're, That's why I love that you're putting it as flow of attention mm. right because if I'm a brand I want to reach an audience Well, I mean, there's this kind of old way of reaching an audience that's very well described in Tim's book, Um, and then there's this potential way that you're describing, which is just, I just take the value and deliver it to the audience.
1: We're we're entering a brave new world here, Ian, and um, I have to say this has been one of the more uh, fun discussions, kind of uh, just the experience you bring to this stuff and watching history unfold in very specific ways over the last few decades. I think I've learned a lot just listening to you like, color some of the, the points I was making with real world examples.
0: Well, thank you for letting me reframe a, you know, your arguments. Thank you sincerely for making me, you know, making me feel less crazy. Um, there was one more example that I wanted to bring before we wrap um, that was, there's so many other questions I have for you, by the way, my list is so long, but maybe we'll, we'll have to, <laughs> we'll do, we'll have to parts, do it again, because yeah. we'll they're, they're, yeah. less, they're less about your piece. So I'm trying to keep this boxed in with, with your piece. But there's another example I thought of, which is that of counterfeit in the world of luxury, right? Um, When I was the chief digital officer at LVMH, every week somebody would bring me another technology that was going to help me, um, you know, help customers identify a counterfeit. So if you think about this in the context of your piece, again, you're talking about that verifiable provenance, programmatically verifiable provenance. So you don't have that problem at all in the digital world. It's like one big problem of physical items that just goes away. Now, here's the other thing, though. What I had to explain to people every time is it's actually not a problem for consumers and it's only kind of a problem for brands, right? Because nobody buys a, you know, for the most part, there are edge cases, but for the most part, nobody buys a, Louis, a fake Louis Vuitton handbag thinking mm. it's real. Yes. If you bought it on canal street, it's fake. If you bought it at the Louis Vuitton store, it's real. Right. And the fact that there are fakes and that they, people want, it's to a fake great them, thing. Actually, it's
1: a, it's a beautiful it, thing
0: it brings value to the brand. So again, I just want to get out there. That thing it, it's about attention, right? Yes. Um, like, like Chris cross says when you, you dis just lets me know I'm on, on your, I'm on your mind. You got right? it. So, <laughs> you, you
1: got it. Brilliant, brilliant points. Um, both from the fashion world and from the hip hop world. Let me just add, <laughs> let me just add to that. And I would say the digital equivalent for what we're seeing with those examples is something called no copyright reserved or CCO. And yeah, you touch on this in your piece. Explain do, that real quick. So CCO is just a tool to relinquish all copyright that an owner holds in a work, a digital object, the the, the work itself, and dedicate those rights to the public domain. And you said it best, but I'll, I'll say it again here. Because blockchains act as the database of record for any digital object, we already know who owns what in these, on a digital blockchain-based paradigm. And so I propose in the piece that for certain projects, tight copyright where you're restricting the use or the flow of information or attention generating activities because you know you don't want people to use the mark in specific ways or you don't want them to creatively remix the work in specific ways by tightly constraining it you're actually doing the project a disservice in terms of its logical attention generating behaviors that should exist and to perpetuate and resource the interesting like value that can flow to a to an object through attention. And so this idea of CCO being able to allow anyone to creatively repurpose, remix, meme, productize, generate intention on top of a work, a body of work, a collection, or a piece of art actually in the internet age, in the digital age where information is abundant actually is the very thing that makes these objects have value. And so it seems counter to just create this work of art and then just let it go into you know the creative commons of the world where anybody can do anything to it. It seems antithetical to you know the legal layer-enforced world that we come from. But in my view, anything less restricts the ability for the object to gain an enormous amount of attention over time, and leaning into that is actually a huge unlock for the long-term value accretion for a collection or a digital object that exists on a blockchain.
0: I love this because this is very practical for for people that are listening. Because what if you've if you've learned anything from this episode, it's really that it does all come back to attention, right? And so yes. I could make a, a digital object. It might be a piece of art, a video, a song, a, a a digital shoe, anything I want to. But if no one cares, then no one cares. Yes. Your your enemy is is you know it's just like it's actually just like in Spotify or, or Apple Music, right? Um, the enemy is no one giving a shit. Right, yes. and so anything that you can do to drive attention, it might not be CCO, but it might be um, really anything that you attention equals value. It comes back to storytelling equals value. Um, I used to say, you know, in, in the LVMH context, that that you know when you take away the storytelling, you're actually removing margin. Right. Um, in other words, like if something is appearing on Alibaba with just a picture and a price, yes. you know that's not a luxury brand. Right. You're actually taking value out of by you're commoditizing it. Right. So what you you know. So if CCO um, creates storytelling and creates attention, then it's then it's going to be net positive.
1: Yes, I agree, and I think the more and I touch on a number of other examples outside of CCO, but the more that you can structurally optimize for a, the digital object getting attention, it that is like the thing that I hope I leave creators with I'll, I'll, after this episode and after reading the piece. Uh, among another of like other concepts that I try to introduce, but at the core of it, it really is about optimizing the thing that you're doing for generating as much attention as possible, because that is how these things become valuable in the future.
0: Is it attention plus scarcity? Because you also touch on kind of um, the gaming, you know, the, the kind of burn, burn games and, and that sort of thing. I mean, that's a way to, to sort of a generate attention but also generate scarcity there's something interesting in that i think
1: scare i so i agree i think the thing that's interesting about the economy game section that i described is actually the ongoing playability of the thing actually is an attention generating activity and that is like a design space that i think creators are starting to play with but my view is that provable scarcity is actually more important than actual scarcity. And so I write this in the piece but like I don't think we're that far away from a world Ian where there's millions of digital objects that exist within a single collection, a single body of work with a million unique outputs or millions of unique outputs and those outputs being valuable. Like I I actually don't think we're that far away from that world and I know that runs counter to how we think about this idea of less is more. When it comes to scarcity, but I make the argument that you can network these things with enough attention to actually outpace any, like you know, relative scarcity that exists to why things are valuable in sets of one or sets of five or sets of ten or sets of ten thousand. My view is the the networking and the attention that's able to generate around a collection actually is more valuable than um, than like the scarcity marker that has been created. But provable scarcity is the unlock to make that happen. It, it still needs to be provably scarce, and like, but the the bounds uh, between that that provable scarcity, I think, is less important than the attention that and the network that's uh, that's able to get generated around a, a specific body of work.
0: Yeah, you have uh, it's it's really supply and demand at the end of the day, right? Like, so if you have an abundance of attention, um, then you know, relative to supply, then, you know, supply can grow to kind of meet that, um, to to meet that demand. So, you know, I think I agree with you. And I think that the, but the things that will have to happen before that gets there is you're going to need a lot of players in in, in the space um, and a lot of the friction, you know, that's in the ecosystem removed, which is why I think the things that, you know, um, Instagram, Nike, Starbucks are doing are, are, are so interesting because I, I agree with you that I can, I can see us getting to that point, but to get there to your, to your to your point um the 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 storytelling that drives the attention also has to scale yes, you got it um, so you'll you'll need a, a sort of a scale of wallets um to use a, 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 a you know a lack of a better word and um you'll need you'll and whomever is the creator of that or or will we'll have to you know and, and it doesn't actually need to be the creator which is the other interesting thing um, we'll have to scale that attention. I always tell my hey, just to see if my friends in the in the luxury business get it. I, I joke with them. I say, you know, five years from now, I'm going to make a game that uses all of your failed projects as um, uh, as game pieces. Uh, you know, so you know, just because if you, if you understand that that's even possible, then you're then you're starting to get what this means. But yes. all right, I've taken a lot of a lot of your time. <laughs> Um, and my, and my ceiling just started leaking as I just was like, what? Um, I just watched, I, 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 you know, I, I, um, there's a lot of rain here in Southern California. Um, and, uh, I really, I really appreciate you joining us to unpack this article. I, I, um, I apologize that, that I, um, that I spit so much of it back at you and I appreciate you, um, you being generous with my, with my reframing, but, um, Really, I was only able to do it because of what you wrote. So th- thank you so much again for for taking um, these ideas, uh, organizing them, sharing them, and uh, and and helping you know get people's head around this. I think my opinion is it's inevitable, right? It's it's not you or I that are that are going to drive this, but um, yes. it does kind of require us to um you know to help unpack it for people so thanks so much for for doing that with us here today
1: thanks for having me and and i'm excited to uh to jump into part two and get through that that laundry list of questions here uh, okay let's do
0: it thank you so much i i appreciate it awesome thanks all right thanks Derek. this content is provided for informational purposes only and is the sole expression of our opinion and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice.
1: Do your own research, any loss or profit is your sole responsibility. Stay safe.